It's September 27th, 2022, and I'm talking with Matt McGregor about the week's acquisition headlines. And the first one we'll start with is Inspector General in clears former DIU chief of ethics violations in defense news. And that's, of course, uh, Michael Brown, the uh, former director of DIU. He was nominated last year in April, I believe, to be Undersecretary for Acquisition Sustainment. Really important job. Really big news getting putting a guy like Mike Brown into that position. I uh, got the nomination. And then what really happened was his CFO at DIU made a complaint. It was like an HR complaint, if you remember, about him kind of hiring his friends potentially. Um, and, D and the IG quickly came out and said, it will take us a year to resolve this, which basically nixed uh, Mike Brown's nomination. And so now they just cleared him. There was no quote, unquote, improper personnel practices while during his time at office. So he's completely um, cleared of all of that. And yet we do not have Mike Brown you know, in A&S. So yeah, I mean, in my view, I would like to get your, your point on this. Um, but it was just kind of weird to me that like this guy could make an allegation and basically veto Mike Brown's nomination through this like long drawn out process. Um, but there was no downside for him to do that, right? Like he made this claim, it turned out to be a baseless claim. Mike Brown wasn't able to advance and what, right? Like that just happened and too bad, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things too, where, you know, yeah, there was an HR complaint, there was, it seems like there could have been two things that maybe triggered this. One is the perception that Mike Brown was hiring, you know, people from Silicon Valley that he knew to have, you know, certain technical expertise, things that he knew the department needed. Um, and so maybe that was true. I mean, DIU is a special organization. It was intended to, to be different. And so you do need the right people in there. You can't just hire, can't just hire anybody, right, for that. Um, and then the other one was, is, you know, maybe they were taking advantage of authorities. There were different authorities that are in place today called expedited hiring authority. And, and that does allow you to shortcut a lot of typical hiring processes. So the other piece could have been that they were just, you know, using these authorities to the, to the max, um, maybe doing, doing it a little bit differently than what maybe some other offices, how they, how they use them. Um, Cause you can kind of add processes to them if you want, but you can also keep it very minimal. And maybe that was viewed by some as being too, like too shortcutting even though it may have, even it was legal, right, based on exoneration, um, it may have been viewed as like too lax or something. So there could have been a couple of things that dro drove it if you don't just assume that this is a complete sabotage. Um, <laughs> but, but the thing that gets me is like HR stuff is fairly straightforward, right? The documentation is kind of, you know, there's not that much documentation. It's like you get, you do the, you have a hiring cert, you put it on the street, you get resumes in, you document, you know, the interview and then you hire, like you can look at that stuff fairly quickly. Like if they thought that there were some improprieties, they could have done a random sample of like 10% of the hires, gone through that documentation and said, okay, were they consistent in their interview process? Were they, did they do an open uh, announcement? You know, did they do let it, let it stay on the street for the required time? They could, have, they could have reviewed that fairly quickly and said, no, this all seems, you know, fairly, you know, fairly benign, you know, maybe they could have improved this process or that. I, I feel like they could have done that analysis very quickly. And though, so the fact like you said, they kind of basically said, oh my God, this is going to take forever. We've got to review all these documents. 
it was really just hard to believe. So yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, that's the the hardest part to swallow on it that, you know, it took more than it took them a year, they could have at least like recognized, hey, this is a pretty important position here. Let's commit to do it in a relevant cycle time. Uh, Congress didn't actually confirm LaPlante, who's the current acquisition and sustainment head, um, until more than one year after that complaint. So they did actually have kind of like a full year of, of wiggle room. But, you know, just that uncertainty, you know, definitely was was problematic. So, you know, I don't think, you know, the IG was intentionally slow rolling or who knows, but that that definitely is a problem. And I wonder, you know, would a sit with the same complaint against a more institutional person have had the same outcome? Yeah, I don't know. But it's just it is one of those things where it's it's such a shame because Mike Brown brought such a unique perspective and really would have sort of shaken up sort of the traditional traditional acquisition mindset. So I feel like the department, I think, you know, Bill Greenwald did a great article. We, we lost, we, we lost somebody at a key point when we needed them and the department will forever be less because of, because of that loss in my opinion. Well, Mike Brown is great. He's actually going to join us at the George Mason DAU conference, November 4th or 5th, I believe it is. Um, so definitely try to join that one. But LaPlante is actually going to be there as well. And so will Heidi Shue. So we're going to have the whole trio. Um, <laughs> nice. So you got to get the plug in. Be sure to come to the George Mason DAU conference. The yeah. next one we got here, um, SDA, a model that could shake up all space acquisition, Calvelli. And that's, of course, the, the Space Force service or the Space Force acquisition executive there. Um, so He's saying that he likes what they're doing. They're building small. They're doing, thing in, doing things in two-year cycles. They're delivering capabilities faster. Um, he actually wants to push that across all other PEOs. Um, and this comes, of course, as the SDA, the Space Development Agency, is being integrated into the Space Force in, quote, a couple weeks. Um, but Calvelli says there's not going to be any dramatic organizational changes for the agency or any changes in its current acquisition authority. So... SDA, I believe it is its own, you know, milestone acquisition decision agency, right? They or they have their own um, authorities on the acquisition side. They have expedited requirements. I think they have a direct line to Space Command, right? And so it looks like he's going to try to keep that vitality alive. Yeah. No, I mean Space RCO. Yeah, they have uh, fourteen projects. Sorry, this and... is SDA. Oh, Space RCO is good too. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm model sorry. That could shake it all up. Yeah, SDA. Yeah. I mean, I think this is good, good models between the Space RCO and SDA. Um, yeah. So the SDA, the thing that recently came out on that is actually that it's going to report to both the, um, the new, uh, you know, Cavelli, uh, Frank Cavelli, and then also the, um, the, CSO. Uh, the CSO. So it's going to have, going to have two two chains it's going to be it's going to have uh, a dual chain as i guess dual uh, dual chain of reporting so yeah so the sda is kind of interesting in, in that sense um in, in terms of their transition to the department because you're right before they were completely outside um and just just reporting mainly for the for the cocom but now they're going to actually have more of a yeah more of an institutionalized director but if, but the good the good news here is that frank Cavelli is seeing that 
their model is is important and, and relevant for the larger space enterprise. It, it still is hard to sort of rationalize uh, that that statement uh, when you hear other things from other places in the in the PEO shops who are saying things like, "Well, we want to buy commercial, but we don't have to deal with these licenses, and we don't want to have to, um, you know, uh, we want them to do the things that we want them to do, but." You know, we don't want to necessarily have to tell them everything they should know. Anyway, I did a snarky post on LinkedIn about it. Um, but I just, you know, I think I think they if they want to adopt the SDA model, they're going to have to really adopt it. It's sort of like agile for software development. You can't just adopt a little piece of it and expect that to, to, to kind of accomplish this transformation. Like it needs to be um, more wholesale. And so I think if they really want the SDA model, they're going to have to really shake up uh, the SSC or as an organization uh, and shape up, uh, shake up the way that, you know, Space Force does requirements and things like that. So, um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see it, remember, <laughs> like they now have oh, a yeah. much more formal rigid structure. It looks like for all yes, that. Exactly. That's the part that I can't, I can't rationalize. It's like, you say you want this, but then all the other things that are being done, including the, well, you guys better have a call schedule baseline. You better have everything planned out. Like, it just doesn't jive. So I, I think the jury's still out. On yeah. what will actually and SBA also has like, a, I think it pretty much just has like one big funding element for the most part. Um, and they're pretty flexible within that. I don't know if the rest of the PEOs are ever going to get, you know, financial flexibility to kind of go along with, even if they, even if Calvelli pretty much delegated everything to the PEO and even MDAPC is like, you know, gives the head nod you know, they're not going to be able to get everything SDA has been able to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. I think they have, I think they do have one budget line for transport and one for the um, tracking. I think, I think, uh, I think what I was like at the budget oh, PE level. I mean, I think they have one PE. Do they have two PEs for those? I thought they may have had two PEs, but you, you could be right. I just, yeah, I was looking through, I was looking through the space docs the other day. I thought I saw those two broken out into different PEs, but maybe not. Yeah. But either way, that's still pretty consolidated. But of yeah, course, I, very, I think very the, nice. <laughs> I think the you know, I, I think the thing we can probably expect is that the SDA, given inertia, will look more like the PEOs than the PEOs starting to look like SDA. So, like if Calvelli says that, there's going to have to be some kind of dramatic action. I don't, I don't know what that would look like, but you know, I, I think the inertia is towards. The other way around. Agreed. Yeah. The next one we got is the Space Rapid Capabilities Office. Is Space Force moving not fast enough for its Rapid Capabilities Office? So yeah, Space Force is managing 14 projects today. Um, they they also they don't have any kind of special acquisition authorities. Uh, they just kind of have that straight access to the top. All of their stuff is classified um, and pretty focused. So I guess they didn't go pretty fast. Uh, what what's your insights on space RCO? I saw one brief on it, but I didn't get you know. I have no clue what's going on behind the behind the scenes. Yeah, and I, I don't think I think they've kept that pretty locked down. Um, you know, so you know this is one of the benefits, right? The SDA benefit was that they were fairly independent, and they um, they were able to sort of do their own acquisitions and their own contracts. Uh, space RCO is a similar boat, right? They they have um, they're mostly classified, so there's probably pretty limited visibility in the, into their efforts, how they're doing. Um, they have really good people, handpicked people, our buddy, uh, you know, Colonel McLean. 
Um, you know, and then, you know, you have, you know, this, uh, this, these goals, which, you know, uh, are set right by these senior leaders and say, okay, in five years, I want you to deliver this. So you really have that requirements sort of, um, you know, stability or, um, the ability to go back. And if there's some trade-offs, you know, you have that access to, you know, the chief of space operations and, and yeah, it's kind of amazing, right? Like it just shows you when we think about broader changes to the enterprise, like none, neither of these organizations, SDA or Space RCO, have any big exemptions or anything. They're just like doing things in the smartest way possible. And by doing that, they can achieve much better outcomes. And so, yeah, it's just a very telling. But uh, yeah, I don't think we'll really know Space RCO's success for a little while, right? They haven't been in, in existence for that long. They haven't delivered uh, anything as far as uh, I'm aware. And so they have that five-year goal. So I think in the next few years, we'll start to see what comes out of them. And if, if people, you know, like, like the Air Force RCO, people say, oh yeah, they're, they're great. They deliver, you know, on time and they met the operator's needs and all that, then we can sort of proclaim it as a success. Um, so yeah, I guess the jury's still out, but definitely, you know, it seems like they are doing all the right things. All the services have their RCOs or some kind of rapid <laughs> function. It's just like, how do you, you can't scale that, right? You can't scale the coddling and the direct access to the top that these guys get. So, no. yeah. Anyway, moving on, Congress must act on small business innovation research reauthorization. Of course, that's the Cibber uh, program. It's a 40-year-old program that needs to be reauthorized and it's going down to the wire. So I heard that they're supposed to vote on it, you know, before October, before the end of the fiscal year, but we'll see um, when it's on the docket and what's happening there. Um, but in this article, Emily Murphy, also at George Mason, uh, former GSA administrator, advocate, she actually kind of comes down here and says that um, the Cibber Mills, the quote unquote Cibber Mills, which are kind of like one of the big consternations, firms that kind of keep coming back to the trough of Cibber and getting more and more, getting like tens of millions of dollars of Cibber funding a year. Um, you know, are they a problem or are they not a problem? In her view, um, you know, because it kind of goes through competitive process, you know, the services are probably actually getting value out of those. So it might be uh, problematic to just cut those guys off. So her recommendations here are one, um, encourage sharing of outcomes between agencies so they can see who is good or not. And then two, uh, promote new entrants to the R&D space um, by using open topics. So we saw that worked with, with AppWorks as well. Um, so yeah, hopefully zipper reauthorization does go through. I personally would like to kind of see it be used in some new and, and kind of innovative ways or moving towards more non-traditional types. But, you know, it was never designed for non-traditionals. It was designed for small business. So um, that, I don't think there's a consensus on that front to kind of actually go that way. Yeah, no, I think, I think the other recommendations are that I would add is, is, is that point is, uh, you know, redefine small business and, and also redefine potentially non-traditionals because it's kind of a weird one. I was talking to some contracting folks about this. It's like, it's like you're a non-traditional if you've never had had you know a cost accounting within the last year or a contract that required it. But if you're always doing fixed price contracts, you could actually be 
a very entrenched contractor who just hasn't had to use cost accounting systems. And so it's like, if you only bid on stuff that has fixed price that, you know, that you kind of like could stay non-traditional forever. Um, yeah. So it's like, well, there needs to be some rethinking about some of that, I think. <laughs> yeah, but, but not, but fixed price isn't the only thing that gets you right. There's like, I think there's 10 exemptions to the cost accounting standards for cash covered contracts. And you'd have to dodge all of them, you know, not just because you could get a fixed price, but if you get a sole source fixed price, well, welcome back to, and it's over $2 million. Welcome back to cast country. You know what I'm saying? Um, oh, well, there's a trigger. Con it gets complicated because there's like a trigger contract. So the first trigger contract is 7.5 million. Once you breach that, then you're in cost accounting standards land, but I get you. Um, there, the one thing that was interesting that came from that GAO report on um, other transactions and are they actually going to non-traditionals or do they have the non-traditional criteria? I don't think there's a database out there that anybody can go to and be like, are you a non-traditional or a traditional? And does that apply at your business unit level or some subsidiary or at your parent level or, you know, just like getting clarity on that might be useful and maybe cats isn't the best way of defining a non-traditional but anyway um that's yeah but i at the same time though I mean, there's a lot of things in, in the far that we have as clauses that we say basically if the contractor has asserts that they are meeting you know xx we take them at their word right, right. because if they lie then you know there could be liabilities so false, i think false the same with, right so that that's a little bit with the non-traditional is if they say they are if they meet the criteria um, but yeah, so I, I do think though that the non-traditional thing is ripe for re-evaluation because what we really want for new entrants is sort of what you said is, uh, folks that are out there in the technology space that, you know, either haven't done business with the government or they are, they only have like, they're pursuing something, you know, where they want to commercialize or, um, you know, start to become become a uh, provider for the, the Department of Defense, right? Like they want to focus on DOD. So, you know, we want those, we want those folks. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, you know, one is, in addition to Emily's recommendations is the other, the other piece of it is making sure that there's enough, you know, money for the following awards, making sure that phase two is really emphasized so that there is that that next step that can really take these promising uh, promising companies uh, to the next level if they need it, right? Or just skipping all that and taking them to a page three if they look really promising. But but yeah, just making sure the money is allocated in the right way. Like maybe that has been diluted where there's too many phase ones and they're just like, that's the easy thing to do. And you're just like throwing all this money, but then you're never really progressing on. And maybe that's one of the challenges with the outcomes is that there aren't a lot of great outcomes to talk about because so many phase ones do their thing. And then a few maybe get a phase two and then that, but we're not doing a good job of maximizing all that, that, that silver pot of money that we have. So, so yeah, probably more stuff to do there. Uh, some of the things I did read the law though, that looks like is going to be included in the NDA. I just want to comment on a couple of things real fast. Um, so one of the things that's going to probably come in with that provision is that uh, security, there's basically going to be a criteria for um, uh the SBA to create a due diligence program to assess security risks. So for every, I guess, company um, that comes in, they're going to have to go through some kind of security evaluation. Why uh, would that be at the SBA? Um, that's, that's basically where it says each federal agency 
um, that awards the grants will coordinate with the SBA in the creation. So maybe the federal agency will run it, but it'll be basically yeah. in coordination with the SBA. With SBA. Um, and then there's also going to be that, that criteria that if you've had more than 50 phase twos within the past 12 years, you must have gotten a certain amount of aggregate sales and investments for those. Maybe that one's fair. Um, but but what does that actually mean in real life? Like, how do you I know, measure that? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Is it another assertion? But the security one is does worry me a little bit because what I do fear is that, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, we've, you can just see this in the data. A lot of the small businesses, a lot of the innovative um, startups often have immigrate, uh, founder immigrate, yep. immigrants, uh, immigrant founders. So uh, if you start to get really deep in the security thing and like, you know, you have to do these deep background checks and now you have to like someone's from, maybe they are from Iran, right? And they came over and they, you know, got their citizenship. But now you have to like, they have family there. You're going to go back and do all that evaluation. Like it, it could become quite well, onerous. Iran is going to be yeah. hard in any case, but like India, you know, like Israel, right? Like even those might be problematic, right? Right. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, so yeah, so that that's going to be interesting to watch. And <clears throat> I think that might be, Sort of an overcorrection. Yes, we do have to look at you know uh, uh, you know an adversarial capital, whatever you want to call it. But um, I'm not sure that like for a phase one, you know, 50k. I'm not sure that that's sort of breaking the government, um, you know, or creating some huge you know security risk. So I think that has to hopefully that even what that even a million program will, <laughs> you know even a phase right. two is not let's like... be reasonable reasonable about this. Yeah. Like you're not going to create the doomsday machine for China with a uh, with a million dollars. Yeah, and it's not like we're giving them the tech. I mean, the technology is what what they're bringing. So yeah, it is. It's going to be interesting to see how that's implemented. I could easily see see it go awry. So I hope I hope there's some common sense in in, in that that's uh, that's put together. But we'll see. The Defense Budget Reform Panel is at work after organizational problems from breaking defense, and that's the PVBE Reform Commission, of course, chaired by Bob Hale, who here is saying, um, quote, from the time the services begin their programming and planning uh, with congressional review and contracting, it can take two to four years to get an idea to go to contract. That's not going to work in this high-tech stuff where technology can change in two to four months. Can we speed that process up? Are there ways to improve flexibility and execution? Uh, I, I sure hope so, Bob. <laughs> Send us down some manna from heaven. Um, but good to see uh, after a slow start, some of that due to continuing resolutions and otherwise, um, that it seems like they're starting to get their staff up and running for this uh, you know, congressional commission that might not be getting quite as much you know, visibility as potentially Section 809 or the National Security Commission on AI, but could be very important if they uh, decide to make those types of recommendations. Yeah, I think they will have an interim report. Um, I forget the due date. I think it might be March. I think because they've had they've got some readjustments because um, of the delay. But th I think that interim report will be really good to at least get something out there for discussion, and hopefully that will start to bring some attention to it. And I think eight or nine panel did that as well, where they, they, they threw out some initial things and it got, you know, got the juices flowing with the community and they got feedback. So yeah, hopefully they'll do the, do the same thing or, well, they definitely will do the same thing, but I hope it generates, you know, generates good feedback and discussion. DOD must move faster to leverage commercial technologies. This is from representative Mike Gallagher. 
Um, he has a, a few good uh, recommendations here, and I love the first one. First, the Pentagon needs to think outside the box when it comes to acquiring commercial technology. Rather than a traditional program of record model, cough, cough, PBBE, uh, which effectively locks the department into a requirement and a single vendor, the Pentagon should opt for a capability of record approach, which would cut across the services and allow the department to continually assess and purchase commercial technologies. So I think that direct, that language directly comes from Mike Brown, capability <laughs> of record approach. Uh, but it's also interesting here, uh, you know, he says it's allowed, it cuts across the services and allows the department to do all this purchasing. So I'm not, I, I would like to know what they actually mean by where they envisioned that would work. So I'm imagining there's like a fund and then some guy somewhere in OSD, right, would actually decide who gets the money, kind of like a little competitive proposal process within the government to go get these types of funds. Um, which kind of concerns me if it's going to be held somewhere who's not responsible for executing um, or has no responsibility for actually making it come to life. So I don't know what he meant by that. I like the idea of capability of record. Just It probably means a million things to a million people. Yeah, I don't know if he was being uh, as precise there or not. Um, may have been confusing a couple things because I think there's Heidi Shu has kind of talked a lot about with Raider and some of those innovation funds kind of being a cross country cutter, you know, Dan Pat and yeah. uh, Brian Clark. But Raider is now in the, in the budget submission by like each of the services. So it's like broken back out and I don't know, it's like becoming part of a system again for Raider. That's um, what it feels like, I'd right? Have, I'd have to see that. No, I mean, Heidi Shu still thinks she has control of that. Well, um, I'm just saying she has control of it, but they've put those line items into the FY23 budget. So it like the Raider account is broken up into five or six different accounts, including Navy, RPED. Um, there's a there's a section in Air Force Tech Transition 6.4 account. The Army has a little bit. There's a little bit in OSD. So they've like kind of like already line item them for the things I think she chose. And now they're disappearing. Oh, yes. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Those are follow ons from the. So it's not initial... a capability. Of, it's not like you have a big Raider pot of money that can go to any of these capabilities. They're kind of getting, you know, pipeline directly to these, to the things that I think she's but, helping choose. But I'm pretty sure there's still an OSD line where they're going to, they're going to fund, they're going to continue to fund additional things. Um, and so they will still be doing those, those selections to look at those. You know, she's basically sort of said, you know, it is those cross cutters, those things that are not unique to one service, um, more focused on the joint force. Um, but anyway, I, I'm, I'm surmising here about what maybe he was getting at with this cutting across the services, uh, because I think right now it would be very problematic to have a capability of record, given how the appropriations are. I mean, you could say the F-35 is that where the different services do feed money into it or the Navy, Marine Corps and Air Force. So you know, there, you can, you can ha definitely have a program, El Razum, Hellfire, both of those missiles have Army, Air Force, Navy money going into them. Yeah. Um, so it's Would not- Would you consider like, that a capability of record? Because it's also way, like a, a, way, pro yeah. a yeah. program, right? Well, uh, you know what I would consider record? If you had had, if you had had um, Jagum and Hellfire in one, in one procurement bucket that would have been a capability of record because 
there's basically follow, it's a Jagum was a follow on this little hellfire, and so we had some other capabilities. Um, but it was just like the next level advancement. So if that had been in the same, like it wouldn't be in the same weapon system code. So it was not it was not combined. But if you had a one weapon system code for, you know, short range, you know, precision strike, that 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 would have been a great capability record example. But no, it was not. So yeah, it's it. I, I do. I would consider those two together. You could do the same thing with like the hypersonics, right? Like let's say the hyper, all the hypersonic missiles, PRSM, uh, CPS, and Aero, we're all in the same, you know, in the same uh, PE or same weapon system code. Then you could say that's a capability yeah. record. But yeah, I don't think we well, have. I remember, I think Congress broke. The Air Force had Hackham and Arrow in the same line item, and Congress <laughs> was like, "No, no, no, yeah. no, you ain't doing that." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, so so yeah, I, I think Mike's getting at the right stuff. Definitely uh, building on Mike Brown's thoughts. Um, also on the overhaul and the requirements process, you know, Mike Brown's been very vocal about, you know, really what we should be doing is instead of coming up with all of our exotic Cadillac list of requirements that are that we think are needed, is actually just look at what's already current state and just say, okay, this is what industry has. Let's go get that and build that, and then you know when something new comes out, we'll 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 build we'll build on it. Um, and and so it's a different way of approaching kind of requirements. So yeah, I think it's good to hear it's good to hear congressmen saying these things because that's really that, that's some of the thought process that the department needs. Yeah, I think the key is what I think you said a couple of weeks ago, which is um, for especially for these commercial technologies that he's talking about. You don't need this giant risk reduction phase to get to a milestone B so you can get to full scale and then, you know, deploy. Like the tech is mostly there. The companies are probably willing to show up. They just need to see like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow if they perform well <laughs> in an exercise and demonstrate value. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Moving on. Um, citing industry <laughs> capacity, Navy's Guild Day, that's the CNO, throws cold water on three destroyers per year. So basically, he says, asked about the capacity issues at the prime contractors for destroyers. Um, that, of course, that's the DEG. There is uh, HII and, and General Dynamics Bath Ironworks. He says they can get to two, maybe two and a half, but not three. Um, and a lot of that has to do with workforce issues and COVID and stuff like that. But just really disappointing that they can't they can't get up to three, uh, you know. I and I, I get the supply chain issues. I actually I, I actually don't. Them, but you know, I, I don't actually think this one is. Sorry, I'm sorry I, this one I don't think is supply chain issues. I mean, I think this is going to get a lot more attention. I, I think we have really um, misjudged sort of recovery from COVID in the defense workforce. Um, I, there were some articles out on this recently about that people who are close to retirement um, that they probably would have stayed on. They just, yeah, COVID, COVID basically just forced them to retire. Uh, they probably would have stayed on longer, right? Cause they were, if they had continued on uninterrupted, but with the whole COVID stuff and, you know, some people needed getting sick and family and members or whatever. So they were talking about the, like one thing I heard consistently was like the, the vaccine, the vaccine thing. And like, they lost people and would they ever get mm -hmm. those people back? But I, I, it wasn't like, substantial but it was like percentages you know <laughs> like of people yeah the workforce is really young now and and they don't they can't get enough people i mean boeing had is having this problem like 
even on the Air Force One, right? Especially with like having people with certain classification levels and stuff. Um, so I think this is something we are going to be dealing with for the next decade in terms of getting a defense workforce that has the you know expertise and the understanding of all the different requirements and how mil the military does things and stuff like that. Because some of the people coming into the workforce today, right? Jobs are plentiful right now. Um, they might not want to deal with it. And there's other jobs out there. And so getting people that want to do the defense work, um, you know, some of this stuff is hard, you know, it's not, not fun to be on production lines. It's not fun to be out there, you know, building ships necessarily. Like, so I, I really hope we can build it up faster, but I think these workforce issues are going to persist for a while. Um, it's a real problem. Extraordinary circumstances, DOD eyes inflation relief for vendors. And um, mostly what comes through here, of course, is that they're not going to provide <laughs> inflation relief for, for vendors um, because they basically, there's no real contractual way out. We've talked about this in the past, um, but they are saying that the, the secretaries of the armed services have the authority under federal law and regs to afford extraordinary contractual relief in extraordinary circumstances where contractors have sought or may seek upward adjustment in price of an existing firm fixed price contract to account for economic conditions. Um, so it looks like, you know, there, you know, the defense pricing and contracting doesn't really have, or they're, they're not going to take a big stance to kind of come to the relief of these contractors, but they're saying there isn't out here um, potentially if, if others want to go at it, but it seems like it'll be kind of a kind of case by case basis. Uh, so only those really big guys, you know, I think the, the larger or the, if a company really is in kind of like can show financial strain, um, they will get something like that. But again, looks like uh, DOD will most likely hold pretty firm to um, the contracts that, that they, uh, got the deal for and if the industry has issues then they can you know negotiate those in the next one but you know i think the epa economic price adjustment does do well to some respect right if inflation crashes in the next few years uh for some reason unexpectedly dod could reap those benefits right but um i don't know we'll see yeah there were two things that stuck out to me on this one real, real quickly is one is adequate consideration and the other is the word extraordinary. So that, that word extraordinary is illegal. It's a legal term. And so you really, the, the, the secretaries are gonna be looking at OGC, their OGCs, um, yeah. Office of General Counsels to really justify that. And they're gonna to have to be consistent in their application of it. Um, so I think you're right. I think this will be used very sparingly. It will probably be controversial if they do use it because other contractors will say you didn't give us, you know, equitable adjustment and then adequate consideration. So it, it won't be, it, it can't be for free. Right. So if, if they do decide that, uh, you know, they'll, they're going to give somebody uh, additional funds for certain, certain pieces of the supply chain, certain materials or something, um, they're going to have to get some, some relief from it. So, or some, or some, something from that. So the government's going to have to get some consideration. And so, yeah, this is going to be tricky. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I don't think this will be, broadly used, I think it will be really uh, for those really extreme circumstances where like maybe a titanium or some some particular metal or chemical or something that's just like create like went up like 300%. Like they're like, okay, something like that maybe. 
U.S. weighing options to compensate commercial companies if satellites are attacked. So that's, of course, if I'm going to, if a company is going to sell satellite services and data as a service, but own their, their assets, contractor owned, uh, what happens if someone shoots it down, right? Um, they're going to lose a big asset and they're going to wish they charge way more for that service. Uh, so it looks like there is some discussion here. Kathleen Hicks was saying, you know, they're going to think about that and look at issues like indemnification that's on the table, but not really a lot came out from this. Um, I don't really know. Like my, my only real thought on this is just like, wouldn't you just have surge pricing? Like if the shooting starts, like what would a surge pricing process look like for these types of ser services, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it will depend. I mean, if it's uh if there's like a lot of competition for that service and things like that, then surge pricing could be a real problem. If it's more of a, the military is more of a primary customer, uh, then maybe it's not, not as big of a deal. Right. So some of these companies like Maxar and stuff, they definitely are looking to do be more integrated with, you know, Hawkeye 360 and they're looking to be more integrated with space force. So, yeah, I think there's different business models. I think uh, space force has to get better at sort of figuring out what those different business models are. Um, you know, that work for the different companies and that work for the government. Uh, maybe it's not always just a license. Maybe there are usage things, but there's minimums, different things like that. Uh, but yeah, this one actually came up. I was at a couple space conferences this last year, and this actually came up multiple times with, uh, especially companies that are about to make some big investments, right? They're like, yeah, we're going to invest in ground stations and, uh, you know, really expand their constellations. They were like, yeah, we want to know, like, if we're, doing doing you know a lot of work for the space force and the russians or chinese go yeah that that commercial satellite seems like they're you know they do monitor those satellites right and they do see their behaviors and if they're you know they have their telescope pointing down at certain things and that don't make sense to be looking down uh they can see that with their radars and so uh they will be able to say yeah that thing is actually doing something malicious and and so, yeah, companies have to have to have some support there. So I hope they can figure this out. I'm sure legally it's going to be really problematic um, for it. Like if, it's, you know, what type of damage, you know, what if, this, if the satellite's blown up, that's one thing. But what are the, what's the degree of, you know, if it's degraded, right? If a laser shoots at an optical, electro optical sensor and it's like mildly degraded, like what does that kind of reimbursement or indemnification look like? versus, you know, the whole system is fried or something like that. So it's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of discussions to kind of iron out those details for sure. Next one we got here, never sleeps, never even blinks, the high-tech endural towers spread along the U.S. border. Uh, so there's a lot of kind of on their lattice system and other things that they're doing for DHS. But one thing that jumped out at me here uh, is endural has spent 520000 so far this year and 930,000 last year on lobbying the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting that the non-traditionals are kind of getting their hands dirty um, in the uh, the D.C. game. Well, Chris Burroughs isn't, uh, <laughs> he knows how the game is played, so I'm not surprised, not surprised well, at that. But it's interesting they spent less this year. <laughs> right? Like, that's, just under, that's just under their own salaries. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So it's interesting if they're, I mean, it looks like so far this year, if that's, you know, September, so they have a few more months, but uh, like it might actually be less, less this year. So 
are they, you know, for they're finally figuring out the system a little bit where maybe they can spend a little less, like maybe they made their inroads. That, that would be interesting to sort of monitor, monitor that trend. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really have a good gauge on how much the other companies spend, but I do remember there was one report, I think it was like last year, General Atomic spent $6 million in one year lobbying, and then they were able to get the MQ-9 line back online, and they got a $60 million order out of it. So that $60 million order, 10% profit, $6 million, they just earned their you know, lobbying back right there. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, the big defense primes have, you know, large staffs. So it's in the it's in the millions for sure for the Lockheeds and Northrop's and stuff like that. So definitely, definitely more than Andrew all here. <laughs> all right. Uh, next one we'll do decision superiority. Air Force picks five companies to develop ABMS digital. And so that's SAIC, L3 Harris, Lidos, Raytheon, and Northrop. They were selected to be part of the Digital Infrastructure Consortium. Uh, led by the Air Force Rapid Capabilities Office. And so it also looks like uh, there's a new office in charge of over overseeing acquisition for APMS, and that's going to be under the C3BM, uh, or it is a program office for C3BM. What, what PEO is that in? Is that in digital? Do we know? Yeah, I'm actually not sure if that's going to be under um, C3INN or... Um... Or digital. digital, yeah, not 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 sure on that one. I mean, but the name yeah, they, sure looks like three C I N, but <laughs> I know it it does it does look like C three N. Yeah, but yeah, any any hot takes on that one? The other the other one here is that there's uh, thirty firms that were added to the Air Force's nine hundred fifty million JADC two contract, and I had to like double take on that because they did they had the same nine hundred fifty million dollar kind of IDIQs out there last year. I guess they're still. That did not much seem to have come from that, but um, looks like they're kind of still going at it with a bunch of other companies as well. Well, there were, I mean, there were a lot of awards off of that, um, off of the initial, I think the initial one was like a BAA actually. Um, so this one's an IDIQ and yeah, the, these companies will be different capability providers for different, you know, uh, different pieces of the AVMS puzzle for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, and then there's the digital infrastructure will basically um, sort of work out that, you know, those key kind of infrastructure pieces for uh, the tactical cloud um, for, for getting some of these sort of uh, environments stood up that, that need to, you know, transfer information across and create uh, a lot for decision-making and stuff. So there's a lot of work to do there at the COCOMs and, um, and the things, the enablers, um, you know, on the back end. So, so yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of good work on that, that front. Um, there's some other pieces of ABMS, uh, cloud-based command and control, and there's some software integrator functions. And those, um, those five companies that are in the digital infrastructure consortium too, they will be uh, part of that, that larger effort as well. So there's, there's, there's going to be a lot of collaboration between these companies that, uh, that has to happen. It's going. It is going to be an integrated effort in many cases, and so, uh, so yeah. That that's going. That's basically why that new PO or that new uh, program office was stood up for C three BM is really to be that integrating function because there's a lot of there is a lot of moving parts and just need to make sure they all come together in the way that they need to. Well, the the saga of ABMS continues, and we'll see if. Uh... <laughs> 
you know, the, the renewed pressure from Kendall and the Air Force RCO turns that around. All right, the last one we got here, Army Depot official and vendor sentence and bid rigging scheme from Army Times. And this one here is kind of interesting. Um, this guy was able to push, you know, I guess all these purchases for the particular vendor. And then what he would actually do is collect fake bids from multiple vendors to make it look as though there was this like a competitive process when in reality, um, it actually wasn't at all. And the guy received more than 300,000 in bribes, including antique car modifications and donations to his volunteer fire department. So yeah, I mean, this is the kind of stuff then, there was also another article on in the Air Force about apparently there's a, a large um, set of investigations going on in the Air Force. And Raytheon also announced that it's setting aside a few hundred million dollars for um, pricing issues as well. So it's, it's this kind of stuff, you know, like you, you kind of feel for the IG, right? Like there is fraud, there are bad things going on. It's just like, how big are they relative to the entirety of defense acquisition? And is making sure you have, you know, one or two or three less of these bid rigging things, you know, worth suppressing, you know, potentially 10 times that, you know, the creativity of honest and, and good people. So I don't know, it's a hard kind of trade off, but I like to think most of the people are, are, you know, honest and true about this. Yeah, I mean, I think the point is too, I mean, it's like the, the processes that these folks had to go through is the process that other other organizations use, right? And it's 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 one of those things where if somebody really wants to completely put their career and life on the line to falsify some paperwork, um, it's kind of hard to get around that, right? Like it's it's hard to see through that, right? I mean, you have to basically you have to hire like triple checkers and you know, it would just be like overkill. So I think um, I think you have to at some point you have to be reasonable and say these these are all very edge cases and you know and then punish them. So those folks yeah. that you talked about, they were sentenced to thirty months. One of the guys was thirty months in federal prison. The other guy was twelve months, and they had some pretty hefty fines. Uh, that's you know people spending three years in jail. That's that's that sends a message. Two and a half years, I guess. Um, but that sends a message. Um, so good, you know, that's, that's how they should do it is punish it, make it, make a, make it public. Like, Hey, if you guys do this, it's gonna be bad, but just adding more processes or more approval chains and things like that. It's, you know, not, not a good answer. Luckily the Navy got fat Leonard back or that would have just been another <laughs> <laughs> forever. Problem. Oh, that one's, that one's a whole different thing. If you guys haven't, uh, for, for those listening, if you haven't uh, listened to the podcast, fat Leonard, uh, highly encourage you to do that it is it is quite the story it will be a movie in the near future it is unbelievable but yeah definitely an edge case <laughs> but it's also like man that was it was cheap to kind of you know get get the navy guys to like schedule the ports and do all that stuff it's just like basically like parties and, and prostitutes i know i know i know you're right it's, they sold themselves very cheap, yeah, uh, for the for the amount of risk they were taking. Uh, really something. All right. Well, that's all we got time for this week. Thanks, Matt. We'll talk to you next time. All right. Thanks, Eric.